There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Friday, January 11th. I'm Desiree Frazier in for Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, learn what workforce issues are facing the state from Mississippi business leaders and lawmakers. We truly have to be focusing on ways to make sure that we're giving our citizens that opportunity to really get the skills they need. And it begins at such an early age, and it goes through having an impact on where we go forward. Then find out why fire death numbers are up across Mississippi. And we'll hear from the University of Mississippi's first female Rhodes Scholar. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi lawmakers and officials tell business leaders they're hearing their concerns about needing more and better educated workers, touting efforts to improve child care and to produce more high school graduates. The Mississippi Economic Council, the state's Chamber of Commerce, says it's making workforce development one of its main priorities in this year's legislative session. MEC CEO Scott Waller says leaders need to pay attention to innovative ideas already happening in the state. What we talked about today was really so many different facets of workforce. And I think a lot of times people don't think about the the role that, say, early childhood education or quality childhood availability, uh, child care availability provides. But I think when you think about it from that perspective, we truly have to be focusing on ways to make sure that we're giving our citizens that opportunity to really get the skills they need. And it begins at such an early age and it goes through having an impact on where we go forward. One of the things that was, was mentioned this morning, it, it, uh, when you think about from a child care perspective, it costs businesses and really the economy about $3 billion a year because parents can't find quality child care. So if we can find ways to make that part of the equation in what we're doing, it's not only going to give a stronger foundation for those kids as they go forward, It's going to also provide the opportunity to keep our citizens in the workforce today. At the top of the agenda, what do you want to get across to business leaders and the legislature? Well, I think at the top of the agenda across legislatures, when I've gone around the state, the one thing that continues to pop up every single time is how do we improve our workforce? And I think it really starts with maybe greater attention on career technical opportunities, making sure we're finding ways to put uh, children in a pathway that will lead to success. 
I think that is the key element in all of this. There are some things that I believe we'll be able to talk about as we go through the legislative session that will focus on some of those things. How do we really begin to focus on giving additional opportunities for getting that type of training, that type of information to the student so that they can make the career choice that's going to help them be successful going forward. Are you encouraging businesses to establish their own child care, early learning uh, programs? Well, I think in many cases that is, that is part of the equation, and so, so many of them already do. I think what they're trying to do is figure out the best way to provide that as a service to their employees in order to do that, and I think there, there are some examples. I mean, Milwaukee, too, is probably the one that continues to be the, the prime example as we've gone forward in, in doing that is that making sure that, you know, you have that opportunity to have a quality child care facility in place that their workforce can use and, and, and take advantage of. What is the biggest challenge for businesses in Mississippi right now? I think the biggest challenge is just, we, we as, as we mentioned, we have jobs that we need to get filled, and making sure that we get the training for uh, those jobs is, I think, the biggest challenge. So what we're going to focus on is how can we continue to increase the ways of providing workforce development training uh, at all levels of education. MEC President Scott Waller. The Mississippi Economic Council made the push at their annual Capital Day yesterday. Karen Stevens is a scholar at the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C. She tells us the state is doing well in terms of early childhood education. I've been impressed with Mississippi since I first connected with Lori Smith because under Governor Bryant's leadership, Mississippi really is taking an innovative approach to thinking about children's development. So Mississippi is not a wealthy state, but that kind of creativity is really on the cutting edge of, of among states across the country. What are we doing that's right? What Mississippi has been doing is recognizing that we need a multi-generational approach to move families ahead. So we tend to segment out these social sort of problems or areas of focus. So we will have children going to school, and then the schools don't do well enough, and we try to fix the schools. And then we have families who are not working or who, who are living in poverty. So we have programs to try to get them into the workforce. And then we'll have a whole other early childhood focus where we're, we're thinking about preschool. And really, all roads lead to Rome. We really need to be thinking about strengthening whole families at the same time. So when you have high quality, we can call it child care, but anything, any, any environment that a child is in is a learning environment for that child. So the distinction that we draw between daycare and pre-K from the point of view of a child's development, that's a false distinction. Child care is early education by definition. So when you have high quality early learning environments for children, at the same time that you are enabling parents to go back to work, you're able to move whole families to forward at the same time. So in Mississippi, the state has been connecting different uh, state agencies that are usually disconnected. So the human resources and workforce and education, those all need to be connected. And most states aren't doing that. Some people in the state I would assume, from what we hear, aren't seeing the results of this. There are calls for more daycare, more quality daycare, right. more pre-K programs. 
So why aren't we seeing more evidence? First of all, I, I want to highlight a point that I made in my presentation. Pre-K is valuable for a lot of kids, but a year a year-long program for four-year-olds is really too late, too little, too late for a lot of disadvantaged kids. The most critical period of development is occurring before children turn four. In addition, most pre-K programs do not support the working schedules of parents. So pre-K is really too little too late for the most fundamental brain development, and it Many working families are not able to use pre-K because the school schedule doesn't match with a working schedule. So we have been thinking of early childhood education as pre-K, but that's not really the measure of a strong early childhood system. That's not really where we should be focusing. We really should be focusing on the youngest children, children from birth to three, and those children are, are, are in child care. So, so that's the first thing, is I think that in general when people are, are, are looking at what's going on, the measure that I would be using is the availability of child care and the quality of child care, not how many children are going to school when they're four instead of when they're five. From a scientific point of view, that's not actually going to be a, a game changer. I also would say that making these kinds of changes in a state or in a society, it takes a very, very long time. Of course, people want to see results immediately, and every child who doesn't have the opportunities, we want every child to have the opportunities from birth. It's an emergency, but it takes a long time. American Institute, or rather American Enterprise Institute scholar Catherine Stevens. Governor Phil Bryant tells us he's encouraging businesses to develop child care programs. I'd very much encourage businesses to look at putting a child care facility within their factory, within their businesses, so that working moms will have an opportunity to bring their child to work with them. Uh, my wife did it at St. Dominic's. They had a daycare there when our children were growing up, and it worked very effectively. You see the production go up. You see working moms that are able to come to work, even if the child is perhaps having a problem. You check on the child. It works. And putting a learning component in there so that those children at the very earliest ages can begin to learn problem solving, conflict resolution, those early skills, those soft skills that are so needed when they get a job. Is there anything the legislature can do during this session to move this agenda forward? I think what we're doing just now, we've got a $10.6 million grant, so we're braiding that with the $98 million that we now spend on federally funded daycare in the state of Mississippi and $200 million uh, all, all on early childhood learning. Uh, and so I think if we can uh, help the community colleges get the curriculum that they need, uh, but the real fact of it is we can do this internally, working with the uh, uh, U.S. Uh, Department of Education, working with Health and Human Services, which is what we're doing now, uh, to have a better daycare environment so these children learn and they're ready to go to school. Governor Phil Bryant. Coming up, find out why fire deaths, the numbers are up across Mississippi. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Support for MPB comes from the Woodward Hines Education Foundation's Get to College program. Based in South Haven, Jackson, and Ocean Springs, Get to College advisors help students and families plan and pay for college. Learn more at woodwardhines.org. MPB would like to thank Daniel, Coker, Horton, and Bell and the Mississippi Healthcare Alliance for underwriting MPB programs. Your company can be an underwriter, too. Find out more 
Go to mpbonline.org slash underwriting to find out how. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. An increasing number of fire deaths are taking place across the state. That's according to the state fire marshal's office. They say Mississippi saw 79 fire deaths in 2018. That's a 36% increase compared to 56 fire deaths statewide in 2017. Of those investigated by the fire marshal's office, many were preventable. Officials say while the total is not a record-breaking number, the number of preventable fire deaths are decreasing. Mike Cheney is state fire marshal and insurance commissioner. He says electrical fires top the list. He tells MPB's Karen Brown having working smoke alarms in the home is critical. We really don't know what's causing the increase in fire deaths. We've had 79 fire deaths in the state of Mississippi in 2018, and that's up for the 53 fire deaths we had in 2017. We just cannot account for the fire deaths and, and the only reason we can come up with is, one, we have not had the budget to do the outreach we normally do. In 2018, for an example, uh, we sent our educators out to 300 schools and reached 41,000 people. But in 17, we went to more schools and reached over 45,000 people. And the second part of that is we lost our ability to use the billboards because of our grants that we've got. They went away. So that we think that's part of it. Now, if people are not aware that they need a smoke alarm, then they're not aware that they can die in a fire from smoke. Smoke's usually the killer. And of the fire deaths we, we investigated, we investigated 74 out of the 79. Uh, most of them did not have a working smoke alarm, and that's really the, the thing that... Uh, causes most of the deaths from a fire, not the fire itself. You used to have a program, if I'm not mistaken, that you would distribute smoke alarms to people who didn't have them. Is that no longer in place? We have a, had a program that would distribute free smoke alarms, and we were getting it back up. We just got a grant approved about a week ago, and uh, we've got over 10,000 smoke alarms ordered. I spoke to the Mississippi Municipal League this week, Several mayors gave me cards and said we'd like to have 30 or 40 installed into our fire departments. And firemen, the reason for that is firemen will put these smoke alarms into a home free of charge if somebody requests one. So we're working on that part of the program to try to get um, more grants, and we ask companies to give us money so we can buy these alarms and give them out. The problem you get if you get it from the federal government, even though they are shut down at the present time, is you have to keep a list, and the paperwork's just horrendous for a $10 smoke alarm. So the grants are where we can give them out and put them in a home, and you don't have to get a, a list of, of email addresses, names, signatures, and everything else for a $10 smoke alarm. Give us some statistics. Are the fires happening at night at a certain time during the day? Are they happening in heaters or ovens? Is there any similarities there or any conclusions you can draw? One of the conclusions we've drawn as to when Fridays occur, most of them occur during the uh, holiday season, and most of the Fridays that we've had so far have been a result of electrical fires. Is that like Christmas lights? Well, it's not Christmas lights. It's using the wrong extension cords where you may have a, a cheap extension cord you bought at a dollar store that cost you a dollar and forty nine cents, and you plug a fifteen hundred watt heater into the cord, and it heats up and catches on fire. I remember that I had to attend an investigation in Warren County where I live in 2008, and three children burned up in the fire screaming, and the firemen couldn't get them out. 
and it was caused by an extension cord that had been run to keep a heater going. And it was in a manufactured home. So we see that a lot. Electrical fires um, in the kitchen are usually caused by overheating or leaving the stove on. And, and we have to classify that as electrical fire, but it's usually because of carelessness by the cook. Now that we're back having some cold temperatures, we're sort of in a little cold snap again, what do you recommend to people like not to do to stay warm? Well, do not stand close to an open flame fire, especially if you have an open heater in a home. Stay away from that heater. Do not use a stove or open the door to try to heat your kitchen. Uh, do not cut the stove on the heated kitchen. Do not bring a barbecue pit inside the house. We've found homes with barbecue pits on them that have caught on fire. And buy a smoke detector and put it in your house, uh, especially with the cold season coming. And if you cook with, or, or not cook, but if you heat with wood in a fireplace or charcoal, be certain that you have a screen around it so a kid or a child cannot get up and get burned or and you don't stand too close to it. Elderly folks are bad to stand close to a fire because they may have a robe on and it takes a while for the robe to heat up. And by the time it gets warm and they feel the heat, it catches on fire. So that's a pretty big deal to us. Are smoke detectors all the same, or is there a place people can find more information about smoke alarms and what kind they should look at? Uh, we have uh, on the website for the Department of Insurance at www.mid.ms.gov information about smoke alarms, and it's on our website. If you're in doubt, uh, call your local hardware store or what we call the big box stores like Lowe's and Home Depot's or any of the big box stores, Walmart would be one, and you can read on the carton about uh, smoke alarms. The difference is some alarms do detect not just smoke but heat, and some alarms uh, detect not only heat and smoke but also carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide, which is a killer. That's usually the thing that kills someone. You can buy those. Uh, they range anywhere from $11 to $21, $22. The alarms that we give out at the uh, state fire marshal's office to the local fire departments are smoke and heat detectors, so they do a very good job. It's really easy if you've got a cell phone or a computer, Google smoke alarms, fire alarms, and they'll tell you um, what to look for and, and the type. And you want one that's UL listed. And look on the back. It's real simple to look on the back, and you see the capital letters UL. That's Underwriters Laboratory. You can see that it's listed and it's certified to be a correct smoke alarm. Mike Cheney, in addition to being the state's insurance commissioner, is the state fire marshal. Mike, thank you so much for being with us. You're quite welcome, Karen. Thank you so much. Coming up, we'll hear from the University of Mississippi's first female Rhodes Scholar. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Whether traveling through Oxford or Tupelo, stuck in traffic in Jackson or Meridian, or cruising along the coast in Biloxi or Ocean Springs, MPB goes with listeners wherever they go. Your company's message can go along, too. Go to mpbonline.org slash underwriting to find out how. Support for MPB comes from the Woodward Hines Education Foundation, committed to helping more Mississippians obtain post-secondary credentials, college certificates, and degrees that lead to employment. More information about Woodward Hines Education Foundation at woodwardhines.org. You're listening to Mississippi Edition, the only daily radio news magazine that covers the whole state. I'm Desiree Frazier. Jazz Brizak is the first woman in the University of Mississippi's history to be selected as a Rhodes Scholar. 
In earning the coveted honor, the senior from Oxford has become the university's 26th honoree. She's also the 2018 Truman Scholar for Mississippi. Brissack has a long history as a champion for human, civil, and labor rights in the state. She is president of the College Democrats and a frequent contributor to the school newspaper, The Daily Mississippian. She tells us how she feels about the elite international academic program. I found out on the same day that we all interviewed in Birmingham because they, it's kind of sadistic, honestly. They come out and tell you in front of everybody and I mean, that's so many nerves in one room at the same time. And I honestly thought that they had called the wrong name. So you're in this room with other people and you've all gone through this interview and then they just come out and call the ones that they have selected? Yeah. That's pressure. It really is. How long did it take you to come down off of that? I had a long drive back with the other folks from my school. And so we all went out for a drink afterward and with me I was still in shock but certainly trying to play it down. How many of you were interviewed? 14 total. And you were the only female or there were other females? I was the only woman from Ole Miss. There were others uh, from other schools. It was about half and half. When you went into this interview did you think I'm the only woman from the university applying for this prestigious scholarship? Well I mean, I'm really close to John and Jarvis, the other guys who were selected for interviews. And so I wasn't thinking about it that way. So it wasn't that kind of comparison, I guess. I didn't know at the time that I would be the first if I won. It hadn't occurred to me yet that there hadn't been previous women. Now that you know, what do you think? Well, I'm really glad to be able to try to help open the door for more women like me to have access to these opportunities. And I think it's really important to look at this intersectionally because just being the first woman doesn't mean that much as we've seen with Cindy Hyde-Smith or with a lot of recent phenomena where women are often perceived to be different just because of their gender. But I think We're seeing more and more that women do need to prove that they stand for something in order for that to be viewed as a victory. And so I'm trying to not just use this as being the first woman, but to use the roads to have a platform for abortion access and labor organizing and other issues that affect everyone. And what will your undergrad degree be in? I'm studying general studies, which is three minors in public policy, journalism, and English. Let's talk a little bit about this scholarship. Tell us what it encompasses. Well, the Rhodes Scholarship is such a complicated institution because it was founded in the very early 1900s by Cecil Rhodes, who was a colonialist and a white supremacist who was trying to basically create more leaders who would go and promote white supremacy around the world. So obviously the selection criteria have changed over the next century. And so I think that my role is in trying to make this scholarship something different because the opportunity to study in Oxford for two years is an amazing one that I wouldn't have otherwise. 
Tell us, what are you studying? What, what will your degree be in? I'm really excited about the intellectual history degree. I still have to apply to Oxford, so we have to get into whatever our chosen path is. But that'll really let me explore the theory behind the activism that I'm interested in pursuing. Tell us about um, labor rights. You said that is an issue that you're very passionate about, and it had everything to do with getting this uh, scholarship. I wouldn't have been able to do this without being an organizer on the Nissan campaign because that really cemented my love for labor and union organizing. And I mean, I've never seen such courageous and tireless activism. Is there anything else that you would like to add? Well, I think it's also important to recognize that my other work has been with the Jackson Women's Health Organization, also known as the Pink House. And I think that in this time, it's more important than ever to talk about and defend these rights. And both of these issues were very important to you and were what drew the committee to select you. Absolutely. This is what I talked about the entire interview. Well, we wish you all of the best, and we just appreciate you taking the time to speak with us about this achievement and uh, the importance of it. Thank you. Thank you. Hear this conversation again whenever you want by subscribing to our podcast. Just search for Mississippi Edition in iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting app. Stay tuned for more programming this morning coming up at 9. It's the Gestalt Gardner at 10. It's Next Stop Mississippi. And at 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedy for Women. I'm Desiree Frazier. Join us again Monday morning at 8.30 for the next edition of Mississippi Edition only on MPB Think Radio.